This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 44 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am thrilled to welcome Ethan Hawke, a terrific actor, writer, and director who is having quite a moment over the last year or so. In addition to winning all sorts of acclaim for his performance in the movie Boyhood, he also recently directed the acclaimed documentary Seymour in Introduction. He's recently reunited with Antoine Fuqua and Denzel Washington, with whom he made Training Day in 2001 for a remake of The Magnificent Seven, which will hit theaters in September. And today, Born to be Blue, an unconventional biopic in which he portrays the jazz legend Chet Baker, hits three theaters before expanding wider in the weeks to come. Hawk has been in the business since he was a kid, appearing in movies ranging from Dead Poet Society and Reality Bites to Gattaca and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. He's a four-time Oscar nominee, twice for acting, for Training Day and for Boyhood, and twice for writing, for Before Sunset and Before Midnight, part of the Before trilogy that he first became a part of with Julie Delpy for his frequent collaborator Richard Linklater way back in 1995. Born to be Blue, which I first saw at its Toronto International Film Festival world premiere back in September, is a small movie, but it's of a caliber comparable to the others that I've already mentioned. I opined last fall that it features some of the most distinguished work of Hawk's career, and I'm pleased to read this week that the New York Times agrees, calling it, quote, an extraordinary performance. Hawk is a lovely guy who's really one of the more intelligent, sensitive, and introspective people I've come across in this business over the years, and I think you'll find his thoughts on his personal evolution and on the life of Chet Baker to be quite interesting. So let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for coming in and doing this. And we're going to obviously talk a lot about Born to be Blue, but I just want to first go back. We do this in every episode and just kind of how we got here. So Yeah, let's do it. You started acting at such a young age, and I wondered if you remember not only how you first got into it, but what it was that you think appealed to you about it at that point. Well, when I first got into it, I didn't have a winter sport. (laughs) Um, My mom wanted me to have an after-school activity, and this friend of mine who lived down the street was taking acting classes at the Paul Robeson Center in um, in Princeton, New Jersey. And as I've thought more and more about it, I think that maybe the Paul Robeson Center had more an, an impact on me than I think. For those who don't know, Paul Robeson is, is a true American hero and also a person who did whatever he felt like doing. I mean, you know, I mean, he had obviously the challenge of trying to overcome racial barriers and uh, obstacles that I have never even crossed my path. But he, he did a lot of different things. 
You know, he was a civil rights advocate, a great actor, a great singer, um, acted in movies and in plays and um, wrote books. And uh, I think that maybe somehow that was my initial impression of what an actor was. And uh, I... I have since grown to only admire Paul Robeson more and more. But so that's what I was really thinking of was that I didn't like wrestling or basketball. So I thought I'd try <laughs> I'd acting. Give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. What led to that film debut in Explorers? And also for you, why then after that, which would seem like a exciting big break, why did you then kind of drop off the map for a few years? Well, let's see. There was a guy at the McCarter Theater, which was the um, local community theater there, which happens to be a very good one in Princeton, New Jersey. And he came to teach a class at the Paul Robeson Center. I was about 12 years old. And he led an improvisation class. And after it was over, he asked me if I would ever want to act in a professional play. And I said, let me ask my mom. So I did. I acted in George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. Um, as a you know spear carrier, and I, I had a couple lines in the show, but it was really exciting to me being around. The thing about McCarter isn't like a community theater in I, I don't know the middle of the country or something. You know, it's it's a ancillary to New York, and a lot of great New York actors would take the train in and work there. And so I was working with a high level of people, and they were really interesting. And I found out about some auditions in the city, and I went on. One of them was a big call for the Explorers because that. For those people that might remember, that was at the time was supposed to be a big movie. You know, it was follow up to Gremlins. The Joe Dante was poised to be the next Spielberg. Mm-hmm. People were loving him, and this was a thirty million dollar movie in nineteen eighty four. And so they were doing nationwide casting calls, and so I went in for it, and I got the part. But the subsequent failure of the movie, you know, I mean, that by, and by failure, I don't mean that. Uh, I really liked the film, but it was a commercial disappointment and um, was pretty devastating to me as a 14-year-old, you know. And I just kind of lost my mojo about it all as a kid. I didn't want to go on any more auditions. And and then one time I heard about this audition for, uh, it was a script about Stephen King's short story, The Body, which I thought was brilliant. So I decided to go in on that and I... Well, it was my first audition since The Explorers, and I walked in for it. And, or I'd done one, I'd gone on tape for it, and then the director called me in, and I came into the audition, and it was Rob Reiner. And he said, uh, You know, you're great, kid. If I didn't just give this part away to somebody else with a funny name, I would give it to you. And I'm like, A funny name? Is that River Phoenix by chance? And he's like, Yeah, River Phoenix, Ethan Hawke, two weirdest names. And, and I was like, oh, no, because I was more jealous of River than anybody. And then I didn't audition for anything else till Dead Poets Society. Till Dead Poets Society. Mm-hmm. And how did you hear about that? And when in the process did you first realize that was going to be an unusually special one? I first heard about it. I had gone to Carnegie Mellon to study acting. And I was a freshman there and, and pretty unhappy. And I got a call from this woman who had been my agent on Explorers mm-hmm. and on uh, the send me out for the body audition which went on to be stand by me of course if I didn't say that make that clear <laughs> and she said you know they're doing these big calls 
would you be interested in going in? And I thought, oh, maybe. Let me read the script. Do you have it? And she sent the script for Dead Poets Society. And I read it and I called my sister and I said, look, this, I hated college. You have to understand that. <laughs> there were seven parts for young boys. And I said, look, I'm going to New York and I'm auditioning for this thing. If I don't, I'm dropping out of this place. If I don't get one of these parts, then I'm obviously n- not meant to be an actor. <laughs> so that's how 17 year olds think, I guess. Right. You know? and, um, so I went in an audition for it and, and I did get it. And I didn't think it was going to be important or significant in any way whatsoever until probably three or four months after it came out did it finally dawn on me that this thing had gone really well. I had so anticipated the Explorer's experience through all the hype of it. I just felt sure. I just was steeled against that disappointment. So not getting your hopes up. But mm-hmm. looking back on it, it sounds like I remember when Robin Williams passed away, you had a lot of nice things to say about it, that you'd learned a lot from him and mm-hmm. all of that. What is the thing that you hold on to the most from that experience? Well, the thing I hold on to most is, is the lessons I learned from Peter Weir. I mean, Robin is an incredible creative genius. I mean, a true appropriate use of that word genius. You know, I mean, it's just extraordinary outside of anything I've come in contact with before or since. But he was, you know, one of the company and we had a leader and our, our, our leader was Peter Weir and nothing could have possibly prepared me better for the life that I was going to want to lead than you know, especially my work with Richard Linkletter, and because Peter would do strange things. For example, he said to Robert Sean Leonard and I once, he said, "Like, I want another scene in the movie about how you two become friends, and I want you two to write it, and I want wow. you to write three scenes. It should be it should be two pages long, three two page scenes around that." And he showed us the on the call sheet, you know, the, the plan for the film shoot. And we're going to shoot it there on Wednesday the 17th. The first half of the day is dedicated to the scene you write. You're going to present three to me on X day, and I'm going to pick one, and then we're going to shoot it. And we couldn't believe Are you yeah. serious? <laughs> so we went to our hotel room, and we stayed up all night for, you know, days on end writing various different scenes, came up with three, and he picked one, and he shot it. Now, it's not in the movie, but what happened was we became friends. Mm-hmm. And that was all he was ever trying to do. Now, funnily enough, what happened to me is it also gave me a lot of confidence as a writer. As a writer, right? Yeah. Which is what you had started to do when you were at Carnegie Mellon? Mm -hmm. Well, it was what I had wanted to do. I went to Carnegie Mellon on a scholarship for acting. And when I dropped out, then I... I had went to NYU as a writing major, okay. and then did later. You know, it took about a year for Dead Poets yeah. to come out. So in that year, I'd gone to NYU as a creative writing major, and uh, I took my Dead Poets money and went to NYU. You know, oh, and that's then, great. And then, weird as a weird turn of fate, my favorite writer was Jack London, and I really, I just didn't want to be an actor at that moment. I was mm-hmm. taking it really for granted, and um, I wanted, I thought being a writer would be a better life, and. Then, lo and behold, I got offered White Fang, a movie to act in a Jack London story. <laughs> and it just felt like the stars were aligned for me just to start following this path. I was, wasn't going to class anyway. I mean, my brother came to visit. He's like, look, man, you can't turn down acting this movie just to chase girls and blow off class. I mean, it'd be one thing if you were sitting here writing like, you know. All right. I guess, in a sense, your first adult leading role would have been Midnight Claire. Is that fair to say, or was there... Perhaps. What was that? You seemed to really... Clear was important to me because it was the first really challenging job I had after Dead Poets Society, and it was 
you know, that was back in a time when independent film was still rare. You know, Miramax hadn't happened yet. Harvey Weinstein hadn't happened yet. The whole ballooning. Independent film was tough and weird. It was hard to find a home. And I was really proud of taking whatever cachet I'd had after Dead Poets. And I met Keith Gordon, who'd made this strange movie, The Chocolate Wars, that I really liked. And we made this film with Gary Sinise, who was at the Steppenwolf Theater Company that I really admired. And so I don't know if... It was still a pretty juvenile performance, I would say. But I was... It was my first... Oh, stepping out into an adult landscape. Mm-hmm. How did Reality Bites change people's perception of you, do you think? This is Ben Stiller, 94, just before your Linklater collaboration mm-hmm. began. How do you think that impacted things that happened after? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know that that's the movie that, like, gave me celebrity. Mm-hmm whatever that word means, like I became fodder for tabloids and things like Because up until then, I was one of the kids from the Dead Poets Society. And after Reality Bites, I had a name. And it was interesting. It was a character that, for whatever reason in the zeitgeist, people just thought it was me. Mm-hmm. And he was not entirely likable. And <laughs> so it's one thing if you're Julia Roberts and people right. think that's, you know, your character from Pretty Woman is like the most likable woman right. in the world. I, people just associated me with that person. People would call me the poster boy of Gen X. And mm-hmm. I teamed up immediately after with the filmmaker of Slacker. Of course. So we were kind of the perfect date there. <laughs> Funnily enough, I think we then went on to make a movie that was completely out of step with our time, you know, and, and Before Sunrise is not about the 90s. It's no. about something else, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, it has more in common with a movable feast or something if mm-hmm. I was going to like wax poetic about it or it aspired to anyway right. is the right way to say that I can see Rick rolling his eyes that's the most pretentious <laughs> thing I heard anybody say before we talk about him though in that movie how do you think so celebrity is a jarring thing I would imagine how did you adapt was it a smooth thing for you or Rocky um, I adapted by surrounding myself with friends in a community there was safety inside that community. I started a theater company. Mm-hmm. My first love had always been the theater, and that it's actually, I think, a much more challenging place for the actor to live. If your goal is not to nurture your own celebrity or your success, but if your goal is to nurture your development as a performing artist, the theater is definitely more challenging. I mean, there's certain people that have achieved an incredibly high level without it. Jack Nicholson, Jeff Bridges, mm-hmm. leap to mind. But... For the most part, I think they they are more the exception. So I was, my reaction was to try to kind of make the world a little bit smaller and make it more something that I could control. And through that theater company, that's how Rick came to you, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. What was the beginning of that relationship and why do you think you guys clicked? Um, You never understand the nature of any friendship, what makes two people click. I feel like we kind of joined a band together and I kind of know with him what my role is and it's comfortable with people when you have a role you you know Mm -hmm. um it's like on any good team you know what your job is and I think people who are good teammates help each other with their weak spots they both you know make each other stronger Mm -hmm. but what happened was Anthony Rapp who'd been in Days and Confused he was in Jonathan Mark Sherman's play Sophistry that we were doing with our theater company and Rick came to see Anthony in that and then we all went out afterwards and we hung out and had a ball and stayed up all night talking and you know Rick's just completely unpretentious and one of the things I love about him is 
you're always meeting young artists that are just complaining constantly. They're so <laughs> hurt, and they have this pain, and this, and the world's done them wrong. And Rick comes at all this stuff with just joy. You know, he, he reminds me much more of what I imagine it would be like to hang out with Anton Chekhov or something. Mm-hmm. He just loves people. You can never hear him say a negative word about anybody. He looks at life like a scientist. I'm gonna know Chekhov was a doctor and Rick was an offshore oilman, so they're very different. <laughs> but I really got along well with him. And then we shortly thereafter started um, Before Sunrise. And Before Sunrise, as the first in the three that we've had so far, that was the only one that you and Julie are not listed as co-writers, but you were really still very integrally involved with the creation of the characters, right? Yeah. I mean, we weren't credited because we weren't savvy enough to ask for credit. (laughs) (laughs) You learned learned that quick. Yeah, Rick had a... um, He had a really beautiful idea, which is that he wanted to make a movie about two people connecting. The whole movie, that's what it was going to be about. He said, the most magical thing that ever has happened to me is not some gunfight or not some helicopter crash or not some, you know, encounter with an alien (laughs) or a superhero or something. The most important thing that ever happened was that feeling when you actually connect with another human being Mm -hmm. and how it can kind of rattle your whole being. He's like, I want to make a movie about that feeling. So to do that, I need you two guys. It needs to be a real connection. I need to know who you are, and I need you to write this movie with me. He had a script he'd done with Kim Curzon, and and we used that, and we boiled that down, and then Rick just encouraged Julie and I to write and write and rewrite and rewrite, and we worked on it. And we developed a process of working. That was the first time we'd worked with a pre-existing outline Mm -hmm. and structure, and the other ones we did it on our own, all three of us all together. And Mm -hmm. so uh, that's how that happened. Was there any sort of chemistry test or anything, or you guys just happened to have this wonderful chemistry that we've seen through the 20-plus years? Well, Rick says that he was never going to make that movie until he found the right two people. It wasn't like a green-lit movie. Mm -hmm. He went around meeting people. He had this idea for the movie, and he tested Julie and I with a bunch of different people, you know, Julie with different guys Mm -hmm. and me with Julie. And he has a unique eye. I mean, when you look at... Days Confused and you look at all the gifted people that are making their debut mm-hmm. in that movie from Parker Posey to Matthew McConaughey to Mila Jalovalich mm-hmm. to Ben Affleck to you know Giovanni and I mean just just the, the list is huge of all the talented people in that movie and it's funny that Rick was looking for two actors to co-write a movie with him and he came up with Julie and I two people have gone on to write and direct our own movies yeah. and which came first, the chicken or the egg? I can't really be sure. Because right. in a lot of ways, I think Julie and I gained a lot of confidence from that experience. When you are playing a character that is so in love with somebody else, do you find that it's almost hard not to feel the same feelings as an actor? I guess a question, because you guys are so totally believable in those three movies, is people wonder, was there actually that feeling well, in reality? Love is a mysterious word, right? I mean... Is it a romantic relationship? No. But I've spent years of my life with Julie Delpy, and I've co-written three movies with her, and they're three extremely... They're projects that are, you know, ripped from us, so to speak. I mean, they're not... They were never a job. So in order to write those movies together, you have to get to know each other really well. and, Mm -hmm. And then in order to act them, you have to get to know each other really well. So it's a... It's among the deeper relationships in my life. It's not, there's no category to put it in that fits right. with what normal society calls, that's what this relationship is. You yeah. Know? But 
it's certainly a, a profound relationship in my life and had a big impact on my life. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People, I think with these long walk-in talks that you guys have in those movies, they develop this perception that you must be improvising. Mm -hmm. Did that grate on you guys because of the amount of work that actually did go into doing it? Or is that no, a compliment? It's, it's really a compliment. Yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, it, it grates a little bit. It's like a, a, a little bit like, oh, I've seen this with other art forms. Like, you know, if you see a dancer and like, God, you, you just move so beautiful. I wish I could do that. <laughs> As if the said dancer just didn't spend 20,000 right. <laughs> hours working on that move to make it look effortless. Right. And Rick and Julie and I are pretty merciless with each other. We're all so different. The way that Julie writes is very different from the way that I write, which is very different from the way that Rick writes. And it's, it is, I mean, Before Midnight is one of the hardest things I ever set sail on. The acting of it, the writing of it, trying to get lightning in a bottle a third time was a, an elaborate uh, rain dance. Especially know? because it's so different from the other it's two. It's so tonally different yep. and it was felt much more dangerous and it was in danger of, you, you know, the, the first two are so meaningful to us mm -hmm. that you don't want to talk down to them and or ruin them in any way or pour water in the beer or whatever it is. It seems like Gattaca, if there was something to ask you there about that one, which I love and I know a lot of people do, it might be that you can never really know how a movie's going to be received when you're making it. You can feel like it's going great, and as I believe you did in this case, and yet the audience is so hard to predict, right? It's a strange thing about movies and the making of them. and I mean, I, I never felt more confident making a movie that what I was doing was original and I was a part of something prescient and interesting. And I felt like what it must have been like to work with Sam Beckett making a new play or mm -hmm. something. I, I felt really excited to go to the set and see Andrew Nichol every day. And, you know, when that movie came out, we really struggled to find a, a, a quote to put on the poster. I mean, this, there wasn't a review good enough to get a sentence out of to put in the poster. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then slowly, as the years trick by, the movie develops, finds its place. And, I mean, Bill Clinton ran up to me and asked me about <laughs> Gattaca. Really? I mean, Gattaca is when I'm doing a play you can always tell that's the poster most often people want me to sign really? you know, because it means a lot to people yeah. and it's taught in schools and people love it and it's been very interesting because last year you know we released this movie that I did with Andrew called a Good Kill mm -hmm. which is about drone strikes which is also very he makes movies that aren't exactly what people want to see mm -hmm. when Gattaca came out they wanted it to be something else and I felt the same thing with Good Kill that they want it to be something else and they struggle with 
seeing just what an incredible filmmaker he is. Mm-hmm. He makes I liken Good Kill to like a desert rose, meaning it's absolutely beautiful, but nobody wants to hold it because it's <laughs> covered in thorns. Right. The left doesn't like the movie because it's so critical of Obama. The right doesn't like the movie because it's critical of the military. It's a hard, painful movie, but I think forty years from now, people will look back on it and go, "Damn it, that guy." is you know he there was a new weapon on the battlefront and it's changing our geopolitical landscape because it's changing the nature of warfare it's changing the way the armies are going to be built and it's a really important subject matter that no one wants to talk about because it's utterly terrifying i think that training day was probably in terms of scale the biggest movie Mm -hmm. maybe that you had done up to that point and you've said that which i find really interesting because two movies that couldn't have been more different tape and hamlet you say those were essential in sort of preparing you for that how do you mean yeah. by that well when you brought up midnight clear is my first adult role I, I what i i usually think of is that trifecta of hamlet and tape and then to training day because mm-hmm. in a way tape and hamlet were easier because it was independent film and it was easier to achieve a level of confidence when there aren't there you know, there's a pressure that comes along with making a studio movie which is there's a lot of people sitting around worrying <laughs> that is is really taxing to creativity, right? I mean, just, I mean, the, the the particular genius of a guy like Denzel is that he manages to be creative in any environment. Mm-hmm. You can't stop him from acting at his highest mm-hmm. level, and a lot of us can't handle that kind of weight. Um, I found, particularly, you know, in my late twenties. You know, when the studio came around, and I, I would just either have a temper tantrum or like <laughs> I just couldn't couldn't be my best self, and. There was something about Hamlet and tape that were really good for my confidence, and it made me willing to be on the set with Antoine and Denzel and play at a very high level. And I just tried to pretend like I was on set with when the stakes were lower. Right. And that's, of course, what you know. Any if what an athlete has to do. If you're pitching the World Series, you can't right. be thinking this is the World Series. Right. Oh my! If I blow this, everything <laughs> will be over. You have to realize it's just another game like any other, and I love baseball, and I'm playing. And also, it seems like you were happy to be seen outside of... Like, there had been a growing tendency, I think, to see you as this intellectual guy. Well, I was struggling to shake off. I mean, it's funny about movies and how people perceive you. Like, when Dead Poets Society came out, you know, I was an intellectual, introspective, soulful guy. And then Reality Bites came out, and I was grunge, you know, <laughs> uh, slacker, hipster type. And, you know, I had this screen test for Training Day. Nobody wanted like, he can't really? play a cop. And then I played Training Day, and then all I could do was cop parts for 10 years. And then Boyhood comes out, and now all any script anybody gives me, I'm a father. You're a dad. Like, 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 and it's just, that's the nature. And I, it's my job to constantly, because let's face it, they don't want to pay you to see you do something you haven't done before. Right. They want to pay you to right. see you when they know you can do right. it. Right, it's not a gamble. Yeah. I do think it's interesting, though, that you... Almost always, and I know there are exceptions, including, I guess, Magnificent Seven that's coming up, but you tend to shy away from these big studio movies. And yeah, I want to read seven, you a quote. Okay, read this it to is, me. All right. So, what did I say? Something quote, terrible. A lot of these movies, they're really enjoyable to see. Really, it's like smoking crack or something. You walk out <laughs> and feel diminished by it. It's eye candy, just violence and sex, definitely lots of sex, people making out or showing their tits, which is always fun. But it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. I tried. I tried doing this Angelina Jolie movie, which was Taking Lives, a popcorn movie. The first time I did a movie that's about nothing, and I didn't like it because I do ultimately feel there's enough crap like this. So, <laughs> No wonder I can't get a job. 
What was I thinking? No, but I mean, I think but that's admirable. That well, you... yeah, there's an appropriate thing to say at a coffee table and there's an appropriate thing to say in public. But, <laughs> um, okay, what are you asking me about that? I'm asking you, do you feel like it's still possible to be creatively ambitious in a big studio movie? Oh, it definitely is. It's hard to do. Yeah. And, and you have to be, uh, you brought up Magnificent Seven and then I did. Well, because I like being on a set with Antoine. Mm-hmm. Antoine can play and swim in the big ocean and he's he works with his heart, you know? And I mean, I'm not to say that he doesn't work with his head too, obviously he works mm-hmm. with it, but he has passion, what I mean. And, and, and his passion is contagious and I like... I like watching all of his movies because they have heart to them in a way that, you know, Sam Peckinpah has heart and, you know, heart matched with artistry. And so I like going to war with him because you, you can't compromise him. You can try and maybe you'll get him to change the ship, but it's, you can't deny his heart. However, the movie is the movie is the movie with mm-hmm. him. And that's it's fun. And now you combine that with being with Denzel and because Denzel cares immensely about the level of acting and it's a great combination because you know the thing about Antoine is that he can shoot pouring a cup of coffee and make it sexy I mean like this you don't even need to put music on his shots the music's already there that's how he shoots he's so evocative that way and so then and there's lots of filmmakers that are like that. I would. The problem is that lesser filmmakers often, while they can thrive in the independent scene, when you have, you know, a big corporation breathing down your neck, man, it is hard. I don't blame the filmmaker, mm-hmm. and I don't even blame the corporation anymore. When I was younger, maybe I understand the corporation has needs, and, and they're not spending fifty million dollars to make me a better actor. Right, right. That's not their goal in life. Right. They don't want to promote an Ethan Hawke movie. They want to promote a Universal movie, mm-hmm. a Fox movie, mm-hmm. a Paramount movie, and that's what they should do. And when I was younger, I think I was like mad at the world for not being exactly like me. And right. now I realize, well, there's a place for everything. You can't ask a studio to finance a big swashbuckling Western and also want it to like have idiosyncratic <laughs> moments that a Richard Linkletter film has mm-hmm. that are only going to be appealing to a certain amount of, you know, yep. it's a certain obligation you have. I do agree with what I was saying, <laughs> um, but I wish I phrased it more deftly. And I hate um, whenever I say those things and it comes off implicitly critical of other people of my industry because I know I have all people know how hard it is to walk this dance. And I often feel like a cat and I know other people must feel that way too. We're all just staying alive and people imbue like as if we have all this agency as if I get to do everything I want to do you know we're all we're as good as we all are you know right. we're all in this d- dance together if, if we don't have interesting people promoting interesting cinema it won't get seen it, we're, we're all part of it together so talking about finding a way to tell a story that's outside the box a year after training day you get your first Oscar nomination I think people are maybe looking at you differently and then you go and decide with Rick again to go and do a movie that is unlike anything anyone's ever talked about. And I just wonder how the idea of this movie that became Boyhood 12 years later was first brought to your attention and if you actually thought this was going to be possible because most studio chiefs don't last 12 years. (laughs) So the idea that somebody is going to keep funding you for that amount of time and I mean, was what ended up happening what was presented to you as the concept at the beginning? Strangely, it was. It was. But what 
even like what I was saying about how we're all in this together, you know, there's so much luck involved in that. Like, I think if you went back and looked at the head of every development company, like, how many of them that were the head in 2000 and how many were in at 2015? Jonathan Searing might be the only yeah. one. <laughs> Jonathan Searing is the head of IFC, and there certainly isn't many. No. And the fact that we lucked that Rick had the intelligence, good fortune, whatever it is, to go to him with this project, or that Jonathan was the only one that saw what it was, I don't know. I just know that when Rick and I sat down, it was right after Training Day came out, and I remember my son was just born, and really he was coming to visit my son, and he we talked about this idea of a movie about what if you could make a... A movie that was more like a novel, like where because there's that inherent fake thing about mm-hmm. any movie about childhood, which is that it all happened at one moment. Right. No, we all grew up over a series of moments that come to feel like one thing mm-hmm. called childhood. And what if you could? How would you do that? And it's funny, you know, there was no script when I agreed to do it. There was no nothing but knowing Rick the way that I do, and it, the movie looks, feels, smells exactly like what he said he was going for, and obviously really connected with a lot of people. Was there always the plan to go back and do a second before movie? No. The second before really came out of the film Waking Life, which was an animated film that Rick did, you know, about dreams and consciousness. And in it, there's a dream figure of Julie Delpy and I. And we Rick asked us to come in there and write a scene for that. And we all wrote that scene together. And, and when we left, we just loved working together. And that started, well, what could happen? How could we do this? Would it be possible? How would it be possible? And and then it's just slowly the Rubik's Cube kept turning until, click, oh, we had a vision of what that movie could be, and that became Before Sunset. And yet when you go back and watch it, I've heard it, it's painful to watch. Well, it's painful to watch because I can see in my face how unhappy I was at that time period. And, you know, I wasn't aware of what I was radiating at mm-hmm. the time. When I look back on it, that's, you know, I was just just getting divorced and I was in a lot of pain about it and I, I feel like that shows in my face maybe I see it but um, I love the movie in a lot of ways it might be there's something perfect about that film oh yeah you know most movies all they, they have there's something that movie it feels like a, an accident it's just like bam yeah. it just happened and I don't know how it happened the ending the beginning everything about it it's just like it very rarely happens, and, and that's what made us so scared to do a third one. Well, between the second and the third, you did a movie that I think you don't get enough credit for, which is one of my favorites, and was the last movie of Sidney Lumet mm-hmm. before The Devil Knows You're Dead. And I just wonder for you, was working with him and working with Philip Seymour Hoffman, both of whom are now since gone, was it a special experience for you? That's the understatement of this interview. Really? Yeah, you know, I mean... Linkletter just had a... He has this organization called Austin Film Society gives Texas filmmakers grants, and they did... It's not really 10 years, I think it's nine, but they did an anniversary (laughs) um, screening of Before the Devil Knows You're Dead because Rick loves that movie too. And, you know, you have to think about just how remarkable this is that what Phil did was... Sidney had been talking to Phil about this movie, and this happens all the time where actors, like, win the Oscar, and the next thing they do is they do some giant superhero movie, right. or they do some giant... They just cash, cash out, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? And you know what Phil did? Phil went to one of his heroes and said, what's that movie you want to make? Let's make it. You know, he had the cachet to get that movie made. And that movie is like the last flourishing of a master, you know? I mean, it's... it's If you watch it and you had no idea who directed it, it's like a young man's movie. It's angry, it's visceral, it's... Uh, 
steamy. It's, I mean, the performances are all on edge. Mm-hmm. Um, there is nothing complacent about it. He's playing with editing, and yet, like classic Sydney, he never pushes. He never tries too hard. It's never about him. It's always about the character. It's always about emotion. And watching it now, I, did, I just watched it the other day for this anniversary screening. Mm-hmm. And there's this, when there's a finite number of Phil Hoffman performances, you know, when we didn't, there wasn't, it was just one of many, you know, at that time we were getting two or three a year. Like mm-hmm. that was the same year as the the one he did with Mike Nichols, um, Charlie Wilson's War. And, and the Savages. And the Savages. And then right after that was Schenectady. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's just cranking them out. Mm-hmm. These just visceral, powerful, and now you watch it and you're like, oh, it's one of an X amount. Mm-hmm. And you realize what a personal, um, he's he's wrestling, he's presenting for us his own issues with addiction. Um, they were right there yeah. for everybody to see. It's very powerful and very sad and yeah. very upsetting. And, um, oh, it's just a heartbreaking movie. Yeah. You know, also, I, I didn't realize at the time um, just what a terrific Marissa Tomei performance yeah. it is. I mean, yeah. she's just a broken That's woman. Great. Yeah. So, and there, you just can't believe Sidney Lamette is making this. He's an 83-year-old guy. <laughs> and by the way, if, if anybody sees one movie this year, yeah. um, in the election year, you have to re-watch Network. Yes. Network speaks, everybody thinks what's happening in this election is so far out and wild, and you go watch Network, and you cannot believe, it's like they're talking to us from beyond the grave, you know? You know? 40 years It's ago. like, warning, warning! <laughs> Last movie I'm going to ask you before Born to be Blue is obviously Before Midnight, which I think you said that the first two were about romantic projection, and this was about what happens when you get what you want. Mm-hmm. It's structurally so interesting because you have this as I recall, the 14-minute opening and then this blow-up for 30 minutes at the end. How did you modulate it? Was this one of these things where, like most movies, it's done out of sequence, or were you able to do it in a way so that you could build to that? Well, the, there's a there's a riddle in in the DNA of how Rick sees these movies, which is that you know people often talk about the long takes. And they think, then they immediately go to, is, is it improv? Is it not improv? Well, it's good. What they're forgetting is that if you do a 14 minute take, 14 minutes of the film has just been edited mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. You can't save anything in editing. You can't fix it in editing. You can't make it better in editing. How the movie is, is how we shot it on the day, which it means a high level of prep for Rick to know that whether this line's going to work, because you, you're not going to cut it out. And you just live and die by your own sword. And that movie, in a large way, was conceived as as six scenes. It's actually very, very simply laid out, the architecture of it. And it's all building mm-hmm. towards the fight. And do you, you were able to do it largely in sequence or no? No, we were able to do it in sequence in that it was so completely and fully written before we started that we were able... We did huge readings of it and worked it out. Yeah. And um, we did shoot the fight last. That's true. But some of the walk and talks had to do with sunrise. And, you know, I mean, that, that 14 minute driving shot is, you know, 27 miles. Yeah. We had to stop the traffic for 27 <laughs> miles. So you can bet we there were some pissed off Greeks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. It was an incredible 
experience, I mean, largely working up to the fight. I mean, every mm-hmm. everything in that movie is just kind of a rumble. Yeah. It's like a, you know, like a big drum solo. <laughs> Getting just, louder. You, you yeah, hint at yeah. it, you hint right. at it, you hint at it, and then it goes. So, speaking of music, you have always been a big jazz guy, or when did that come along in life, and when did Chet Baker first cross your radar? All right, Chet first crossed my radar when Bruce Weber released Let's Get Lost. That okay. was a very popular movie when I was graduating from high school. Yeah, I'm sorry, documentary. And, um, I didn't know anything about jazz except for that my mom had a few Miles Davis records, mm-hmm. right? And Chet, ironically, is a great entry point for people interested in jazz because more than any of the other, the bebop, great jazz improvisationists, he really was interested in melody, mm-hmm. which until you really understand what Charlie Parker mm-hmm. is doing, you can be wowed by it, but not be moved mm-hmm. by it. And once you get it, then it's really powerful. But your ear has to kind of be taught. Anyway, I became a Chet fan, and Chet kind of turned me on to Nina Simone, and you know Nina Simone. Then you kind of get into Birth of the Cool or Kind of Blue, or some of the great jazz records. Um, but I was still only knowledgeable about the things that everybody is, you know, as a novice might be aware of. And then when I was about thirty, Linkletter and I decided we wanted to make a movie about Chet Baker. <laughs> we had just done tape. And Stephen Belber wrote a beautiful script that spawned out of this idea that we had all had about Chet Baker. And and so I was I was prepping for that and really wanted to do it and reading everything I could about Chet. And and then we just couldn't get the money to make the movie and Rick just moved on. Mm-hmm. And then 10 or 15 years go by and, and this script shows at my door, which is in a way a more dangerous and vulnerable place to meet Chet and a more exciting place to meet him as an actor because I'm meeting him at an incredibly weak moment. And a sort of imagined situation also, right? Totally fictitious situation, yeah. So can you talk about the preparation, the intellectual, the musical, and the physical? Because this involved each of those from everything I understand that you had to do to get Uh, ready for this. It was so complicated. Well, once they talked me into doing my own singing, which was felt very dangerous and could really be laughed out of town I realized that I needed to change the way I spoke because he's in order to pull off the songs you know he just speaks an octave higher than I do and his whole set point is at a different place in his vocal register and that was an interesting challenge you know like to try to access a different part of your voice mm-hmm. Not people think I mean the singing I just mean the whole yeah, movie Yeah. and then of course teaching myself about Chet, I had to understand his influences. You can't just listen to Chet Baker music. You have to listen to what he was listening to. And that's the first time I really went down the rabbit hole with Miles and Charlie Parker and Dizzy and really Hampton Hawes and and even the more contemporary people like Brad Meldow. And you start Mm -hmm. to really kind of start to get the jazz ethos of what they're going for. And the physical as well. And the physical too, you know, about, you know, I have to act with dentures in my mouth. And it was definitely the more, I'm usually drawn to I try for a level of where you can't see the person acting. That's my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. And if you reach too far, then you see the person acting. And I was always worried about this. This was just too big of a reach. But it was all so close to my heart, I kind of thought, oh, you know what, I can do this. So as a final question, I wonder what your takeaway from being so immersed in this guy was and maybe also just why you think it is that so many creative artists, maybe primarily musicians, but many creative artists, including people that you've worked with, are in some ways so self-destructive. Does it come with the territory? And how have you avoided that? 
Well, it's a really good question. And I mean, I made this documentary called Seymour in Introduction, Great. which is about this 88-year-old former piano maestro. And one of the things, why I made it is about this kind of yearning for some balance. And one of the things that he says that I really admire is that if your art isn't in service of something, if it's, and it's, the world wants to make it this, oh, Marlon, you're so amazing. Oh, Jimi Hendrix, you're brilliant. It's like, you didn't invent acting. You didn't invent rock and roll. You didn't invent the guitar. I didn't invent the camera. I didn't, you know, we're all a part of a series of dominoes that are so much bigger. And there's relaxation in that because you realize you're not carrying the world on your shoulders. And then you can integrate your own development as a person and really try to shine, not for yourself, but for us, for the art, for movement forward. You know, Miles Davis is pushing music forward. He got clean because his passion for music is so much greater than his passion for himself in a way. I mean, I don't know the guy I'm imagining, but, but for Chet, part of the problem is, and I think for a lot of us, when we're too consumed in our own pain management, we can sometimes credit the tools we use for pain management as our gift. You know, I love thinking about Willie Nelson right now. Willie Nelson just has a great jazz record come out. He guy's 80 years old. He's doing a Gershwin album that is mind-blowingly fantastic. And he's, he doesn't hate himself. And think about the work. Think about the work. If Amy Winehouse could have figured out how to love herself, mm-hmm. it wouldn't make her less of an artist. It would give her 25 more albums. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing, I have a daughter that is falling in love with acting and doing this. And I always think if you can eradicate self-destruction if you can just take out of the equation that you won't destroy yourself your chances of succeeding contributing in the arts just went up exponentially Mm -hmm. it's the biggest demon in the woods is our own insecurity and feeling of unworthiness well I really appreciate this thank you so much thank you man It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.